Welcome to Fixing the Future, an IEEE Spectrum podcast. I'm Senior Editor Stephen Cass, and this episode is brought to you by IEEE Explore, your gateway to trusted engineering and technology research with nearly 6 million documents with free search and abstracts. Today, we are talking with Charles Coffini, CEO of Panoramic Software, about how adopting functional programming could lead to cleaner and more maintainable code. Charles, welcome to Fixing the Future. Thank you. So you recently wrote an expert feature for us that turned out to be incredibly popular with readers um, that argued we should be adopting this thing called functional programming. Um, can you briefly explain what that is? Okay. Um, functional programming is an older version of uh, programming, actually, than what we do today. Um, it, it is uh, basically, as it says, it's uh, basically based around functions. So um, where object-oriented programming is an, has an object model where it's everything you, you see everything through the lens of an object and the whole world is an object and everything in that, that world is an object. In functional programming, it's, it's the similar. It's, you see everything as a function and the whole world uh, looks like a, everything in the world looks like, like a function. You solve all your problems with functions. Um, the reason it, it, it was, uh, it's older uh, and wasn't adopted is because um, the, the, the ideas were there, the mathematics, the ideas and everything were there. The hardware just couldn't keep up with it. So um, it, it, it became um, you know, relegated to, to academia and, uh, and you know, the, the, the hardware just wasn't available. To, to, to do all of the things. That has been, uh, since probably the, the 90s, it's been uh, not a problem anymore. So I, I, I just wanted to like, you know, as, as somebody who is, um, you know, I would call myself a kind of a very journeyman programmer. <laughs> um, so one of the first things I learn when I'm using a new language is usually the section says how to define a function. And there's little, you know, everybody's got it, Python's got it. You know, um, even some versions of basic used to have it, you know, C has it. So how, but, but I think function here means something different to those functions I'm used to in something like C or, or Python. Yeah, I, I have a joke that I always say is that when I learned C, uh, the first program I wrote was Hello World. And when I learned Haskell, a functional programming language, the last thing I learned was Hello World. And so you really, you with with C, you did, you know, your first hello world was a print function, something it printed to the console and you could see, hey, I got my first C program working, here it is. But the, the, the complexity of doing side effects and IO and all of that uh, is such that it gets pushed aside for just pure functional programming. What does that look like? How do you put functions together? How do you compose them? How do you take these smaller pieces and put them all together. And, um, and the idea of side effects is, is something that's more advanced. And so when you get into a, a, you know, a standard language, you just kind of jump in and start writing, like everybody writes the hello world, thanks to Kernigan and Ritchie, you know, when they, what, what they did in their book. Um, but you, you really don't get to do that for a very long time. In fact, in, in the book that I wrote, it isn't, it isn't for hundreds of pages before you actually get into, um, you know, putting something on the screen. You know, it, it's relegated to the fourth section of the book. Um, so it, it, it is a, it's a it's a, a difference in that. 
side effects where you can affect the world is very standard in 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 you know um, imperative languages, the languages that everybody uses, C and Java and JavaScript and uh, Python and you name it, um, the standard languages. But um, uh, and that's why it's very easy when you first learn a language to just hop in and feel like you're able to do lots of stuff and get lots of things done very quickly. And um, that gets kind of deferred uh, in, a, in a functional language. You, you tend to learn that later. So the kinds of functions that we deal with in functional languages are what we call pure functions. They're very different than how we think of functions in programming today, but more how you think of functions in math. Right. So you have inputs, you have processing that happens in the function, com computations that are going to occur in that function. And then you have those outputs. And that's all you don't you don't get to manipulate the world in any any way, shape or form. So um, I want, want to get back into into a little bit of that, like um, tutorial and how you get started up on, on stuff. But it sounds to me a little bit like, you know, I'm searching for a, a, a model, my previous model of experience. It sounds to me a little bit like kind of that the Unix philosophy of piping very discrete little utility programs together and then getting results at the end and, and that kind of philosophy. Yes. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, that's like composing functions using pipes. Uh, or I'm sorry, composing programs using pipes, and we compose functions uh, in, in the very same way. And the power of being able to do that, the power they, you know, they, they figured out back in Unix to be able to just say, well, I'll write this very simple little program that just does one little thing, and then I'll just take its output and, and feed it into the next, and it does one little thing. And it, it's exactly the same thing just at a smaller level, you know, because you're dealing with functions and not full programs. Got it. So, but this does seem like, like a fairly big sort of cultural shift where you're telling people you don't even get to print until you're halfway through the book book, and so on. But, but I, and I think this is something you raise in the article. You know, we have asked programmers before to do make fairly big shifts and the benefits have been immense. And, and the one you, you, you talk about is, is getting rid of, of go-to whereby, you know, in the beginning, we all, you know, 10 go-to, whatever. And uh, it was this go-to plaza. And then we, we kind of realized that go-to had some problems. But even though it was this very simple, you know, tool that every programmer used, we've, we've kind of mostly weaned ourselves off go-to. Um, can you talk a little bit about like, like, like sort of the parallels between saying bye-bye to go-to and maybe saying bye-bye to some of these imperative stuff and, 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 these things you call side effects, and then maybe talk a little bit about what, what you mean about like global state, and, and because I think that will perhaps illuminate a little bit more about what you mean about, about side effects. When I started in programming, it was way back in, you know, 78, 79, around that time, and, you know, everything was a go, you know, you had basic, I had, you know, a machine with 8K of RAM, that was it, K, you know, and um, it, you, you didn't have, you didn't have room to do all the fancy stuff we can do today. And so, you know, you had to try to make things as efficient as possible. And it really comes from branching down in the assembly language, right? That you know, Everybody was used to doing that. They'd go to the, just jump over here and do this thing and then jump back maybe, or return from, from a, some subroutine. And you had very little, you know, uh, machine power to do things. So, um, you know, go to came out of, assembly language. And as it got in the higher and higher level languages and as things got more complicated, 
then you wind up with what's called spaghetti code because you can't follow the code. It's like trying to follow a, a strand of spaghetti, you know, in a bowl of spaghetti. And so you're you're like, well, this is jumping to this and that's jumping to this. And, and like, you don't even remember where you were anymore. Um, and I remember looking at code like that, mostly in, written in assembly language. And so as structured languages came about, people realized that if we could have this kind of branching, but do it in a, uh, do it in a way in which we could abstract it. We could think about it in a more abstract level than, than down in the, in the details. And um, so we've, if you look at that, I use that as an example because I, I look to the past to try to figure out what, what are we doing today? If we take imperative languages and if we move to functional, we are giving up a lot of things. You can't do this and you can't do that. You don't do side effects. You don't have global state. Um, there's all these things that you, that you, there's no such thing as a null, null pointer or a null value. Those things don't, don't exist here in this, in this way of thinking. And it's like, you have to ask yourself, wait, wait, I'm giving up these things that I'm very familiar with. And well, how do you do things then in this new way? And, and is it beneficial or is it just a, a burden? So at first it feels like a burden, an absolute burden. It's going to, because you're so used to falling back on these old ways of doing things and old ways of thinking. And so, and especially when I, I was like 36 years or 30 some odd years into programming and imperative languages. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking functionally. And now I have to change my, my whole mode of thinking. And you really have to say, well, is it beneficial? So I kind of look to the past getting rid of the go-to was highly beneficial. Um, and I would never advocate for it back. And, and, I, and people did comment on the article saying, well, yeah, these languages have go-to, but not the go-to I'm talking about, right? They still have these kind of controlled go-tos in C, not where you could just jump to the middle of anywhere. And that's the way things were um, back in the day. So yeah, things were pretty pretty wild back then. And we wrote much simpler bits of software. You didn't use libraries. You didn't run in operating systems always. I did a lot of embedded coding in the early days. And, you know, so you wrote everything, you know, it was all your own code. And now, you know, and you might've written, I don't know, maybe you've written, you wrote like a thousand lines of code. And now we're working in millions of lines of code. So it's a very different world, but what, when we came out of that that early stage, we started shedding these these bad habits, and we we haven't done that over uh, over time. And and I think you have to shed some bad habits to move to functional. So I, I do want to talk uh, really get again to the, what the, the benefits of functional programming are, especially with I think the idea of like thinking about maintenance instead of the, that sort of the white hot moment of creation that you know. Everybody loves to write that first draft, really thinking about like how software, how software is used. But I did just want to unpack a sentence there. And it's something that also comes from C. And it's not necessarily something that is, is baked into assembly in the same way, but it, it does, it does come into C, which is this idea of the null pointer. You mentioned the null. And can you talk, talk just a little bit about the null and why it causes so much problems, not just for C, but for all of the sort of, as you call them, curly bracket languages that, that inherit from it. Right. So... Um, they're, they're, in most of those languages, they all support this idea of a null. That is, you, you don't have anything. So 
So you either have a value or you don't have a value. And it's not, it's sort of like just this idea of that every reference to something could potentially not have no reference, right? You have no reference. So it's, think of a kind of an empty bucket, right? I just, I just, just for, for maybe readers who are not familiar. So a pointer is something that points to a bit of memory where, where, where something of, of information is stored. And usually at that point, there's a valuable number, but sometimes there's just junk. And so a null pointer kind of helps you tell ideally whether, whether the, the pointer is pointing to something useful or it's pointing to, to junk. Would that be kind of a fair summary yeah. or am I butchering it a little? Yeah, I think at the lowest level, you, like if you think about C or assembly, you always have a value somewhere, right? And so you, what you would do is you would say, okay, so they always point to something. But if I have an address of zero at the very lowest level here, if I have an address, so if my register has a value of zero in it, and I usually usually use that that register to dereference memory to point to someplace in memory. Then just that's going to be treated specially as oh that's not pointing anywhere in particular. There is no value that I'm referencing. So it's a non. I have no reference. I have nothing basically in my hand. So it's not something that it's just a language is trained that if I see a zero, that's a flag. There's right. nothing there. Right. Exactly. And then so exactly. so then how does this then? So that sounds like a great idea. Um, Wonderful. So how does this yeah. then cut? Well, how does this cause problems like later on? I've got this magic number that tells me there's that tells me there's bad stuff there. You know, wh why does this then cause problems? And then you know, you know, so so and how can functional programming really help with that? Okay. So the problem isn't in this idea. It's, an, it's sort of a hack. It's like, oh, well, we'll just put a zero in there, and then we'll have to, well, you know. So you like that was okay. That solved that problem. But now you're just kicking the can. So everywhere down the road where you're dealing with this thing, now everybody has to check all the time, right? And it's not a matter of having to check because the, the situation of where you have something or you don't have something is something that's valid situation, right? So that's a perfectly valid thing, but it's when you forget to check that you get burned. And it's like, and it's, it's not built into most of the languages to where it does the checking for you and, and, you know, you have to you have to say, oh, well, if this thing's a null, or if it's not a null, then do this. You know, there's all the, these if checks, and you just pollute your code with all the checks everywhere. Now, functional programming doesn't eliminate that. It doesn't it's not, it's not magic, right? It doesn't eliminate it. But in many of the functional languages, at least the ones that I've worked in, um, they have this concept of um, a maybe, right? So a maybe is um, it can either be a nothing or it can be just something. And it's, other languages call it an option, um, but it's the same idea. And it's, so you either have nothing or you just have this value. And it, because of that, it forces, because of the way that that's implemented, and I won't go into gory details, but, but, but because of it, they, they force you to, you don't, the compiler won't compile if you didn't handle both cases. And so you're forced to always handle it as opposed to the null. You could choose to handle it or not, and you could f choose to forget it, or you could go, or you could not even know that it could be a null and you could just assume you have a good value all the time. And then you don't know until you're running your program that, oh, you made a mistake. Um, the last time place you want to find out is in production when you hit a piece of code that is run rarely, but then you didn't do your null check and then it crashes in production and you've got 
you know, problems. With the maybe, you don't have a choice. You can't compile it. You can't even build your program. It, it really is a great, um, a great tool. Even, and many times I, I still don't like the maybe, right? Because it's like, ugh, I have to handle maybe, right? Because it forces your hand. You don't have a choice. Ideally, yes, that's the right thing, but you know, I still grumble. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I, I think the the tendency is always to take a shortcut because you think to yourself, "Oh, this will never, this will never right. be wrong." It's fine. I mean, right. I, I do this all the time. I know when I when I write, even even the limit, I know I should be checking return value. I, I should be writing it so that it return. If something goes wrong, it should return an error value, and I should be checking for that error value. But do I do that? No, I just carry on my merry way because we know better. Right, we know better. <laughs> so I, I do want to talk talk a little bit about about but the benefits than the functional programming can build, and you make the case for some of these concrete benefits, and especially when it comes to to maintenance. And as I say, I think you know one of the the, the charge that's fairly laid against maybe sort of the software enterprise as a whole is that it's great at, at creating stuff, inventing stuff, but we're not so good at maintaining stuff. Even though there are examples we have of code very important code that runs very important systems that sits around for decades. And so maintainability is kind of actually super important. So can you, can you talk a little bit about those benefits, especially with regard to, to maintainability? Yeah. So I think, um, so before you even get into maintainability, there's always the architectural phase, right? You want to model the problem well. So you want to have a language that can do really, um, uh, can really aid you in the, in the proper modeling of your, of your types and um, so that you can model the domain. So that's the first step. Um, Cause you can write bad any code, right? In any technology, you can, you can um, destroy it, right? You, no matter how great the technology is, you can, you can, you can wreak havoc with it. So no technology is magical and that is gonna keep you from doing bad things. The trick about technology is you want it to help you do good things, right? And, and encourage you and make it easy to do those good things. Um, so that's the first step is to have, have a language that, that's really good about modeling. And then the next thing is you want to like, con we haven't talked about global state, but you need to control the, the, your, the global state and in, in your program. And in the early days, going back to assembly, Every variable, every memory location is global, right? There is no local. The only local data you might have is if you allocated memory on a stack or if you have registers and you pushed your old registers as you went into a, a subroutine, things like that. But basically everything was global. And so and we've been, we've been, as languages have been progressing, we've been making things more local, what's in scope, you know, who has access to this variable, who doesn't have access to the variable. And the more, um, if you just follow that line as you get to functional programming, you control your global state, right? And so there is no global state. You actually are passing state around all the time. So, and a lot of like modern, um, say JavaScript um, frameworks do, do a lot of that. They've taken a lot from architecturally from functional um, programming, like a React is one that um, where you, it, it's a matter of how do you control your state? And that's been a problem in the browser since day one. Um, so controlling the state is, uh, is another important thing. And why am I mentioning these other things about maintainability? Because if you do these things right, if you get these things right, you, it, it, it aids in your maintainability, right? There's, there's, 
there's there's nothing that's going to fix logic problems, right? There's there's always logic, right? And if you get if you if you if you make a logic problem mistake, there's there's nothing there. Like you you just made the you made the wrong call. Um, no language is going to save you because it's got to be powerful enough so you can make those mistakes. Otherwise, you can't make all the things. So, um, but what it what it can do is it can it can restrict you to you. You, you, you can't make this mistake and you can't make that mistake and you won't make this mistake. It restricts you in the mistakes, right? And it makes it easy to do the other things. And that's where the maintainability really, I think, comes in is, is the ability to, to create a system where you've, you know, if you've got the proper modeling of the problem, you've properly, you know, managed, because um, really, what are you maintaining software for? You're fixing problems, right? Or you're adding features, okay? So that's all there really is. So if you're spending all your time fixing problems, then you don't have time to add any features. And I, I found that, you know, we spent, in the old days, we spent more time, you know, the fixing problems than adding new features. Why? Because you, why are you adding features when you have bugs, right? So you have to fix the bugs first. So when we moved to functional programming, I found that we were spending, yeah, we still have logic problems here and there. I mean, we're still human, but most of our time was spent thinking about new features. Like you, we would put something into production. You got to have good QA, no matter how great the language is. But if you have good QA and you do your job right and you have a good, solid language that helps you um, uh, architect it uh, originally correct, then you don't think about like, oh, I have all these bugs all the time or these or these crashes in production. You just don't have crashes in production. Most of that stuff's caught before that. Um, uh, the language doesn't let you um, uh, paint yourself into a corner. So there's a lot of those kinds of things. So you're like, oh, well, what can I add? You know, well, oh, let's add this new feature. And that's really value add at the business level because that's really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how cool some technology is, but if it doesn't really have a bottom line return on investment, you know, there's no sense in doing it, uh, you know, unless it's a hobby. Um, but for most, most of us, it's a, it's a job and it, and it matters the bottom line of the business and the bottom line of the business is you want to make improvements to your product so you can get either greater market share, keep your customers happy and keep them from moving to people who, who can add features to their products. Um, competitors and so forth. So um, I think the, the maintainability part comes with um, originally with really good implementation, initial implementation. So I, I want to get, get that idea of implementations. Um, so oftentimes when I think of when I maybe I'm, in the past, I've thought about functional languages and I have thought about them in this either as a kind of academic way or else things that live in in deep black boxes way down in the system but but you have been working on pure script which is something that is directly applicable to web browsers which is you know when I when I think about you know advanced clever mathematical code models, you know, browsers are not necessarily what I what I what I would associate them. It's it's kind of a very fast right. and loose environment right. historically. So uh, can yeah. you talk a little bit about PureScript and like and uh, and how people can kind of get a little bit of experience in that? PureScript is a um, statically typed, purely functional language that has its lineage from Haskell, right? Which it started as an academic language. And um, 
it compiles into JavaScript so that it can run in the browser, but it also can run on the back end um, running in Node. Or you can write it and have your program run in an Electron, which is like a desktop application, right? So every, pretty much everywhere JavaScript works, you, you can pretty much get PureScript to work. Um, I've done it in backends and I've done it in browsers. Uh, it's, I haven't done it in Electron yet, but it's pretty academic. So it's, it, that's totally doable. I know other people have done it. So, um, so that's, that, it doesn't get more like run of the mill kind of programming than the browser, right? Um, it's, and JavaScript is a pretty terrible language, honestly. It's, it's, a ter it's terrible in so many ways because you can shoot your foot uh, off so many different ways in JavaScript. And, and every time I have to write a little bit of JavaScript, just the tiniest bit of JavaScript, um, I, I'm always getting burned constantly. And so, um, so anyway, so what is, so what is a, 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 pure, a pure functional language? A pure functional language is that all your functions are pure. And a pure function is what I talked about earlier. It only has access to the inputs to a function. The it does its computations and it has its outputs. So that's kind of like what we did in math, right? You have a function f of x, x gets some value, and maybe your function is x plus 2. And so it takes the x, it adds 2 to it, and the result is whatever that value is, right? Whatever the computation is. So that's what a purely functional language is completely pure. And there are languages that are hybrids, right? PureScript, Haskell, Elm, these are all languages that, that are pure. And um, uh, they don't compromise. So compromise languages are really great in the beginning, but you can easily lose out on all the benefits, right? So if you can, it's the same thing with the go-to, right? If we had, if we, if we, if we relegated go-to to like, okay, we're going to stick it in this corner and you sort of don't want to use it, it, it doesn't stop you from pulling that, that off the shelf and using it all day, right? So it's best to just eliminate something and, 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 and not compromise and not have a compromise language. Um, to me, Scala is a compromise language. Um, it's not fully functional. Um, and there are lots like Clojure, I, I believe has to, even JavaScript. JavaScript is actually, for me, was my introduction to functional programming. There's functional concepts in JavaScript. And I thought JavaScript was the best thing since sliced bread when I had, when I had those things. I didn't know they were functional at the time, but I'm like, this is something that I've been looking for for years. And, and I finally have it in this, in this language called JavaScript. And I can pass a function as a parameter. I mean, I wanted that for, for decades and all of a sudden I could do it. And, um, and so, uh, I, I, I'm a big proponent of purely functional languages because of that, because of hybrids don't work well. Um, and you, you, you it, all you need is a single library that you're using that didn't, the author didn't, didn't, uh, use all the benefits and all of a sudden now your whole thing is messed up whatever you've built your is tainted by this library that isn't um that isn't pure let's say right so um so i think that i i think that uh uh it, the benefits of haskell and pure script uh being fully pure are are really great 
complications are you have to think very differently because of that because we're not used to thinking that way um, there's all these extra things that have to be built um, as that are all part of the libraries that make that that much much easier but then you have to you have to understand the concepts um, uh, so I hope that explains PureScript a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I literally could could go back and forth with you all day because this really is truly fascinating. But I'm afraid <laughs> we're, we're out of time. Um, so, I, But I do very much want to uh, thank you for uh, talking with us today. Great. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah, it really was. Um, so today in Fixing the Future, we were talking with Charles Scalfini about functional programming and creating better code. I'm Stephen Cass, Right Triple Spectrum, and I hope you'll join us next time.